0: Hi, this is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. Last week my co-host Alex Ashkin had a conversation with his old friend, Fez Kidwai, his high school and college chum, who's now a physician public health expert, and advocate for fair and equitable health care. is now a psychiatric resident at SUNY, the State University of New York Hospital. He began his residency last year as the COVID-19 pandemic raged. The lockdowns and restrictions imposed by states and municipalities aiming to curb the spread of the deadly disease have affected more than just the bodies of the people who've contracted it their spirits, their attitudes, their emotional well-being, their very psychological health have been affected as well. And not only have covid positive people been forced to confront the fallout from the novel coronavirus, but those of us lucky enough to dodge that bullet have suffered profound psychological effects as well. Last week Kidwai addressed the needs of people driven so low by the pandemic that they might be considering harming themselves, either inadvertently, through the use of substances, or directly. This week, Alex and Fez Kidwai continue their chat. The two discuss the pandemic's effect on American black and immigrant populations, as well as those at the less fortunate end of the economic spectrum. And again Kidwai will provide context for people in crisis mode due to the unprecedented solitude being imposed upon us by this virus. Let's begin with Alex asking Kidwai about the American healthcare system's ability to handle all aspects of this pandemic. This is big talk. Talking about what we all deal with the
1: thoughts we deal with and the environment we, we grow up in. Mm-hmm. You actually had a very phenomenal convocation speech at your 2016 graduation at the Boston School of Public Health. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to quote it before launching into our next question. I learned that what often appears as misfortune is frequently a system of systemic failures as opposed to moral failures. Take obesity, for instance. Sometimes obesity is not a consequence of poor choices, but due to lack of choices. There's little you can do to eat healthy when the only place you can shop for food is the liquor store down the street. You go on and say, privilege blinds us from seeing these things And there's nothing wrong with being privileged. What is wrong however is choosing to be blinded by our own privileges. Mm -hmm. And so you eventually go on to say as public health professionals we're in the business of trying to save people from the dangers that they sometimes don't know about or do Mm -hmm. not see in their own lives. Has this changed in the face of COVID-19 and do you think that some of the common perception of public health has been altered by this global experience?
2: I think there's a common refrain in, in public health that we only get attention when things start to go wrong, because it's really hard to celebrate when things don't go wrong. You know, we've had massive public health successes, but that's not how the human human mind works. You know, you, you celebrate being cured of something like uh, like cancer, but you don't celebrate not getting cancer. And that's where that's more public health domain in terms of preventing that outcome. So unfortunately, by the nature, the very nature of the work, public health tends to be, tends to only come into um, in, uh, to, to the na- to national attention when it's being scrutinized for why did something bad happen? Uh, it wasn't supposed to happen. Almost all public health practitioners agree that, you know, we certainly have a PR problem. I think we did see that with this pandemic. I think it starts with just the WHO taking perhaps a bit too long in declaring COVID the emergency that it was. And during some points being perhaps a little too self-righteous and condescending and simply telling people to to stay home, well, you know, that's just not an option for some of the disadvantaged groups in our inner community. You know, it's hard to tell someone to stay home when you don't have any any food to put on the table. I mean, you stay home, you don't, uh, you don't eat. Your children don't. So those are things that I think we we could have done a better better job of, like emphasizing harm reduction over just um, offering, you know, bland and and perhaps sometimes equivocal uh, statements. But by and large, I, I'm a little fatalistic about it because I think that our response, our government's response to the pandemic, was just so pathetic initially. Uh, that uh, uh, we were we were really doomed from the from the start. So uh, we are we are definitely also co-opting flack that's directed towards the administration. So mm-hmm. the previous administration,
1: particularly in the age of social media, yeah. one of the biggest issues with public health is just sort of the rapid spread of misinformation. As both a public health professional and as somebody who's a lifelong academic and philosopher what do you think should be done or could be done to combat this issue and does that answer differ depending on which role you take
2: the first few things that come to my mind are you know social media is here to stay so one direction that one could go is you know just have establishing more you know establishing antitrust laws um uh, that are a bit more uh rigid and in, in how they um or are more consequential, uh, so that uh, you know one narrative doesn't get overly privileged by another. Uh, but I guess the more, for me, uh, the one thing that uh, that resonates with me would be to start developing or start to inculcate critical thinking as a value, something that we uh, we try and teach in, in, in schools and really begin to value uh, in each other. Because I think with critical thinking. Uh, you can erect your own epistemic safeguards and uh, be able to say, "Well, that doesn't quite click. That doesn't quite make sense." I don't think misinformation, to be honest, is, perf- is anything new. I think it's just uh, the it's the degree of misinformation that has really expanded. History is uh, is rife with false narratives uh, that uh, had to be corrected. The way that can the best way that I have seen that happen is just. You know, improving well, trying to inculcate critical thinking, and then making sure that you you use uh, whatever whatever knowledge that you require to try and do your part in deconstructing false narratives. Uh, those are just some reflections that that come to mind.
1: The way I always like to think of critical thinking, in a sense, is just sort of learning the ability to learn and to absorb facts and check them against what you know, what various sources say, and it, it's tough because I think there's a certain level of rigor that goes on that mm-hmm. is a little bit not natural mm-hmm. or at least not inherently natural in a lot of people's uh, thought process mm-hmm. because it does sort of require us to take a step back, be a little bit either dispassionate or sort of depersonalize things and think about it from a more broad perspective. And sometimes that can be very difficult. One of the things that you had said in one of your articles is that physicians are no longer just healers, mm. but are also advocates for their patients against these bureaucracies and policies, speaking at large about the cost of healthcare, the difficulties of making sure that they gain access to proper medication or care. And that's something that really hit home for me personally as somebody who dealt with an undiagnosed chronic illness for the better part of a decade. So what do you say to any medical professionals that are listening or just folks that are dealing with an illness in terms of trying to improve their relationships between patients and their caregivers and what they can do cooperatively to sort of navigate these bureaucracies and
2: policies. Yeah, no, well, first of all, I, I, I do hope now, Alex, that you're that you're doing well. I know <laughs> um, that, was, that was a tough time in your life. And uh, look at you for for the way you've bounced back, man. Uh, Thank sorry. you.
1: Thank you. And I'm doing great. Diet change, getting on a specialty medication has yeah. gone a long way between those two things and making sure I'm just being very mindful of it. For all of our listeners, I I have Crohn's disease, which is some combination of a genetic and um, environmental, perhaps epigenetic sort of condition that uh, infects your GI system, where it becomes overly inflamed and can cause very severe issues. Fez was actually one of the people who sent me an incredibly thoughtful handwritten note actually when I got out of the hospital and I still remember that because it, it, it just it genuinely brought tears to my oh. eye but sorry I, I interrupted you please go
2: on no no, I'm glad you did no uh, thank you for telling me that first thing is I think uh, I, 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 I adore this profession but I think it would be just flat out duplicitous if you know, every physician or everyone in, in, in medicine didn't accept the fact that, you know, we have imbibed the, the worst of uh, the United States as well as the best of the United States. Best being the ingenuity that we have in, in, in healthcare. The United States is really uh, remarkable. But then unfortunately, we've also imbibed the racist history of this, uh, of this country, which is flat out undeniable. Uh, you have things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, where black people were being injected with with uh, you know uh, with syphilis and being their and, and you know being essentially left to left to die to measure outcomes. So you have those those gross episodes in our history. You know, uh, f- famous obstetricians who, um, who were doing uh, forced uh, sterilizations on on, on women, uh, hysterectomies. Uh, some without even anesthesia on, on black women, and that's if we think that's a, a story of a bygone era. I think there are reports of that happening at uh, certain detention uh, facilities here in the United States, immigrant um, migrant detention facilities. Yeah, and just I'm,
1: recently, within the past mm-hmm. year, eighteen yeah, months.
2: Absolutely, and in the '80s, I believe there that was happening to Migrants um, uh, from Latin countries and uh, South America, and people from uh, Hispanic backgrounds. So that's a very real history in this country. I think medicine has to do its part by gaining uh, back that trust. How you know that again is is a really broad broad question. But I guess fundamental would be to invest in the community that you are you're working in. Lay down your roots. Talk to sta- Talk to stakeholders. Ask them how. Uh, what can I do to uh, gain your trust. Co-opt more people from previously disadvantaged, you know, with with disadvantaged backgrounds into the profession. I think underrepresented un, like medicine still has a problem of having underrepresented minorities. We haven't increased that the the ratio of of of, of black physicians uh, as much as as much as we should. I think we set milestones uh, that we consistently keep on keep on missing co-opting people from the communities that you are trying to serve. Transparency, I think our healthcare system just, just struggles with being transparent because of how costs are calculated. We've seen what a bad idea it is to tie to marry a person's employ, um, employment with healthcare. So there are several measures that, that would have to go in place. Getting people from the, uh, you know, co-opting people from the communities into the profession that you're trying to serve. And making access easier and being more transparent. Those are just some of the some of the things that, that that come to mind. And then trying to educate the patients at the same time into being their own best uh, their own best advocates, which is not easy. And in your case, now I, I would say early intervention. Just yeah. uh, uh, being able to to, to get in uh, at an earlier time to you know, and if say you know, because it's a genetic condition, for instance, you know, having uh, having that screen like going through with that, with that, with your, with your, your family, then maybe that could have food in into, you know, maybe you having that same illness. Oh, it entirely. Could, it establishes a tradition.
1: I had a second cousin it, once I, you know, posted on social media, like, oh, I have Crohn's disease. Mm. Second cousin re- reached out to me and said, hey, I do too. And someone else, you know, f- along my father's family mm. mentioned, they struggle with various inflammatory bowel diseases as well. So that knowledge would have been really valuable knowing that, you know, it actually in fact runs in our family. And that is one of the biggest determinants or at least showing if somebody might be predisposed to those sort of illnesses. Mm-hmm. Our time is nearing an end. It has been such a delight to get to speak with you. You know, you you, you have been consistently one of my favorite people to look back and remember our conversations in high school. You've always just been so consistently thoughtful, both passionate in your beliefs, but also willing to step out of your own perspective and be empathetic towards others. One of the things that you briefly touched on in our discussion and in various writings is the privileges we have i know personally as somebody who grew up in a upper middle class background in bloomington Mm -hmm. as a white cisgendered male you know Mm -hmm. i've been privileged in a lot of ways both in terms of just sort of how our communities are set up heteronormativity i get Mm -hmm. a big benefit of the doubt sometimes. And I'm just a little curious, are you willing to share or uh, just opine a little bit about how privilege may have impacted your life or things that you might not necessarily view as um, something taken for granted, but something that you give thanks for because sometimes those privileges are good as well.
2: One of my biggest privileges is uh, being my mother's kid, my father's kid, my brother's brother, my friends, family, you know, teachers, mentors who uh, saw someone struggling and maybe, you know, push them in the right direction, great colleagues. Yeah, there's a, a whole bevy of things, a lot of privilege. And then, you know, uh, the things, the unearned privileges that a lot of us have, like, yeah, like you said, being a cisgendered male in our society is, is no less a privilege than any of the others that I've mentioned.
0: Last week, Fez Kidwai talked about the Hippocratic Oath and one of its key components, kindness.
2: The other, the over, the underlying theme of the the oath, the the modern version, is this this theme of kindness. You know, I I tell my medical students the, the, the same thing, that some of them, for instance, aren't particularly interested in psychiatry. You know, some of them want to be surgeons, some of them want to be OBGYNs, other specialties, which is obviously completely fine. Uh, We all have our passions in life. It's what makes uh, medicine a a great profession, what makes life worth living, the the heterogeneity that you see. But what I always tell the folks that are not particularly looking to go into psychiatry is that if you learn anything from me is that I try to make sure that no one on the treatment team can outmatch me in terms of showing uh, kindness and caring for the patient. And by doing so at least for me personally, I think that uh, it allows me to allows me to sleep at night to be perfectly honest because you know there are there are bad there are bad days when uh, you just a patient doesn't respond to therapy and uh, maybe there's a setback in their care sometimes you lose a patient. so uh, as an intern, you know you have six months of medicine and then six months of psychiatry in your first year so. Uh My first six months uh, of residency were spent on medicine, and uh I lost a patient. They basically came in with internal bleeding, and there really wasn't much that could be done in fact more intervention would have in, probably led to a more painful death and 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 or and if there was some way of preserving life uh it wouldn't be on the terms that the patient wanted for themselves so making sure that I took care of everything in terms of you know, speaking to the family, arranging hospice follow up with the social worker, um, making sure that the team was on board, doing everything that I could in my power to uh, make sure that all the family had to care about and the patient had to care about was just going home. It, it wasn't, so the satisfaction from that was really just this clarity, knowing that there, there really wasn't anything that I, more that I could have done in that, in that moment to, to take care of that patient. So there was no jumping up in, in enjoy, obviously quite the opposite. It it was very, it's a heavy emotion when you, when you lose a patient, really one of the worst feelings you can have, but knowing that you did everything you could and knowing that you could not have been any kinder, you know, that's what, that's what allows you to go another day. That's what allows you to sleep at night.
0: And now again, Fez Kidwai addresses the psychological effects of the COVID pandemic.
1: It has irreparably, and I don't. I always like saying for good or for ill, but let's be honest here: for <laughs> ill. Um, <laughs> it, it's forced some interesting changes and yeah. paradigm shifts, but I don't think anyone wanted to uh, go through a global pandemic to get these changes it's changed our communities it's changed how people have lived their lives you began your psychiatry residency mm-hmm. during the middle of this pandemic during this practice have you noticed a particular impact from COVID on patients mental health whether it be chronic or acute
2: i'm sure you remember and i'm sure the listeners will remember as well that when The pandemic really started ramping up. We were hearing refrains like, "Oh, COVID is the great justify, a great equalizer. We're all uh, in this together." And very quickly, we learned that that was uh, a bunch of bull, because in an unequal society, anything that treats everybody equally leads to very unequal results. I think Madonna caught a lot of flack for that uh, as well. um, (laughs) We're seeing that on 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 Twitter, and I. Later, one day, this occurred to me. That I think one of the monikers that she had was the the material girl, and I felt well, funny bit of irony. Um, I don't know why I'm hating on Madonna. There's no reason to, but uh, uh, but it's to make a point that you know, COVID has only exacerbated the the fundamental inequality that already exists in our country, i and the world. That's borne out by the evidence that. You know, black and brown people in the global south will suffer more. Will suffer the brunt of this pandemic. And then, the the real uh, the the continued injustice being that vaccinations may may not be available to the global south until possibly 2023, twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four, because of all the rich countries having, for the lack of a better word, just hoarding all the all the supplies. And um, here in the United States, still. Uh, because uh, black and brown people have traditionally struggled for access to care, uh, they're lacking behind in, in vaccination rates as well. So all of that is is very very concerning. As um, you know, as, as a phys- physician in the United States, at this point, um, and you have you know I think another study showed that people suffering from schizo- schizophrenia have seen a um, uh, a threefold increase in mortality, and that's after adjusting for Demographics, sex, and um, other comorbidities. So, you know, I wouldn't want to pontificate on what what I think the reasons are for that. But you know, certainly thinking about things like lacking access uh, certainly comes to mind. Oh, and I want to clarify that uh, actually, interpersonal violence presentations at the ED were the one, were the was the one measure that that dropped, which is actually pretty uh, concerning because you know that means that people are probably trapped. At home with their with their um, you know with their assaulters or their their victims, so that's pretty terrifying uh, statistic really. As far as personal anecdotes, you, you definitely hear personal stories of how you know people are were becoming further isolated from their from their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many patients that come to mind, but specifically uh, some in in the geriatric population who were stuck in their rooms for three to four months. Not being able to see your grandchildren, not being able to see your children—I mean, that's that's devastating, you know. And, and going back to mentioning the the rise in uh, overdose presentations to the ED, uh, you know, it, it's not hard to see that connection. So you self medicate when you're feeling hopeless. All the things that, that I've, I've personally seen during this during this pandemic—it's um, brutal. A lot of people struggling
1: mental health treatment and maintenance has always been a little bit stigmatized, particularly sort of as a part of public discussion. Do you have any good advice for folks who are trying to sort of take their first step to begin working on their mental health or any sort of signs to look out for Mm -hmm. when more acute intervention might be necessary?
2: So first, I would just give the listeners the the number for the National Suicide Prevention uh, you know, Hotline is 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. So if you're uh, feeling, you know, if you're having those persistent thoughts of, of suicide, you know, I, I encourage everyone to call the number and get help. And uh, as far as identifying the, uh, you know, the worrying signs, I mean, the big, the big ones are obviously, you know, uh, behavioral changes that you see in a patient, they become more, or in a person, they become more withdrawn, they become more isolated, more anxious, start uh, using substances more like uh, over, uh, you know, drinking to excess or overdoing um, uh, smoking or even uh, smoking marijuana, other recreational drugs. those are all concerning signs, hyperactivity, disturbed sleep. So there's uh, continuing to endorse hopeless thoughts uh, so those are all um, concerning signs, uh, and I think the best way, um, best way to get uh, access is to, you know, really start by first talking to someone, uh, talking, telling, telling a friend, and then also friends and family members doing their part in checking up on someone that they think is is struggling, making sure that they also identify those signs in their, uh, in their loved one, and. Uh, you know you're struggling with these persistent thoughts of suicide. Uh, you know, call the hotline and uh, go to the emergency room um, and get and get get started on on your treatment. And uh, for access, I for resources in your own community, I would recommend uh, uh, calling the National uh, Alliance on Mental Illnesses uh, uh, number. It's one 6264 That's one 6264 and they someone can help you get in touch with. Uh, with resources in your own community.
1: Fez Kidwai, mental health professional, public health professional, public health equity advocate. Thank you so much for joining us on Big Talk. I'm Alex Ashkin, and to all of our listeners, have a great night. This episode of Big Talk has some opinions from both its host and the guest. That do not necessarily reflect the opinions of either's employer or any organizations that they belong to. I also want to issue a quick correction to one of the notes that my guest Y had offered during this interview. In discussing the Tuskegee experiments, he mentioned that the individuals who were experimented on were injected with syphilis. He later issued a note saying that he would like to correct that those who were experimented on were infected with syphilis as opposed to injected.
0: In case you missed last week's part one conversation with guest, Fez Kidwai and host Alex Ashkin, please go to WFHB.org for our archive of Big Talk editions. Simply click on WFHB Programs, select News and Public Affairs, and then select Big Talk. Big Talk is celebrating its seventh year on WFHB. We've had conversations with hundreds of guests in the sciences, the arts, politics, and business. Big Talk, where you meet the most fascinating people.